Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Interrobing Podcast, produced by Interrobing Books in Dallas, Texas. On this week's episode, we talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gilbert King about his new history of the American South, Beneath a Ruthless Sun. If you had a judge who happened to be in on a conspiracy to frame somebody, which is what happened in this case, all he had to do was sign a document committing Jesse Daniels to a mental institute. Gilbert King will visit the store on Monday, May 21st at 7 p.m. You'll also hear about the exciting events we'll have in the store in the coming weeks. Remember, you can support the store 24-7 by shopping on our website, www.interrobingbooks.com. There you'll also find new releases, articles, and book recommendations. Gilbert King began his career in publishing as a photographer and ghostwriter. Since the release of his 2008 book, The Execution of Willie Harris, King has been considered one of the nation's leading writers of civil rights histories in the American South. His second book, Devil in the Grove, which covers Thurgood Marshall's 1949 defense of the Groveland Boys, won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in 2013. His new book, Beneath the Ruthless Sun, was released on April 24th. Here's my conversation with Gilbert King, recorded last month on Skype. Gilbert King, thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of Interrobing Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So, Gilbert, to start us off, I'm wondering if you can give us the premise of Beneath the Ruthless Sun. So where do things begin for the story? Well, that's, that's a great question because um, it really takes place in the same part of Florida that my last book, Devil in the Grove, took place, except this is about eight years later. And what's really interesting about this time frame is it's just in the aftermath of Brown versus Board, the, the great school desegregation landmark case at the Supreme Court. And what, what was happening in Florida at the time was really interesting as very much throughout the South was there was a really difficult reaction to the idea of, of desegregating the schools. And so in a lot of ways, race relations took a great step backwards in, in 1954. You started to see the rebirth of the KKK. These white citizens councils started popping up throughout the South. And it was particularly violent and noticeable in Florida. Against this backdrop of heightening racial tensions in the mid-1950s, then you also have these kind of isolated communities where local governments can have rather extreme perspectives on race relations, as we see in, uh, in the town where the story takes place, Okahumka. In the midst of all of this national and local tension, a woman is raped. Can you give us a sense of the inciting incident of the story? Sure. And this is this happens in December of 1957. It's a very small town of Oklahoma, a population of just a few hundred people. And one late one night, uh, a very wealthy woman whose um, husband is a citrus grower, a wealthy citrus grower. Her husband takes off uh, out of town. And in the middle of the night, she is actually raped and she reports it to the police and she tells police she's been raped by a, quote, husky black man. And so the police descend, including the infamous sheriff, Willis McCall. They descend on this neighborhood in Oklahoma, the black neighborhood, and they start rounding up young black men. They get two dozen of them, throw them in the cars, take them down to the jail and start interrogating them. And so this goes on for a couple days. You know, the, the community in Lake County is already kind of heightened 
about these kind of accusations because they they really live through this uh, case from Devil in the Grove involving Thurgood Marshall. So you can imagine the community is thinking, oh, no, we have another high profile rape possibly here in Lake County. And all of a sudden, you know, these young black men are being thrown in the jail. The story starts out with that happening. And then Mabel Norris Reese, who's this local reporter who's sort of been a thorn in the side of Sheriff McCall, she starts looking into the case. And, and what she begins to find is is kind of shocking. With the town on high alert, with this somewhat dictatorial sheriff, uh, kind of on the loose, kind of on the rampage, yeah, enter Mabel Norris Reese, this journalist. Who Who is Mabel Reese, and, and how did she come into this rather unique situation of a combination of racial injustice and, and abuse of power in Okahomka? Well, what's really interesting is that Mabel Norris Reese, when she first moved from Ohio to Lake County, she was sort of on board with all the things that were happening in Lake County. She was really a big fan of the sheriff. She didn't see any racism at all in Lake County. And when the case started, the Groveland case, uh, eight years earlier, it was her reporting that basically got the Supreme Court to overturn the decision because they felt that her reporting had basically poisoned the jurors, the potential jurors in the town of Lake County. And what's interesting is after Willis McCall shoots some of the Groveland boys, she kind of has a change of heart. She begins to see things the way they really are in Lake County, and she becomes determined that she's no longer going to support the sheriff and just turn a blind eye to the racism. And so she has this sort of redemptive arc, I guess you could call it, where she's she's going to turn over a new leaf. And so when she sees this new rape in Okahumpka, She's going to report on it because she's really got a careful eye on Sheriff Willis McCall and his deputies. Sheriff McCall and his deputies, they round up a few dozen local black men. They're in jail, but they eventually arrive at not not one of these local black men from Lake County, but instead someone quite different. Yeah. Now, this is where the case really kind of takes a, a real head scratching turn because all of a sudden Willis McCall starts releasing the suspects, not all of them. Uh, he settles on this one African-American 18-year-old kid named Melvin Hawkins. And wouldn't you know it, Melvin Hawkins is actually the nephew of Virgil Hawkins, who has a great big case before the U.S. Supreme Court to integrate the University of Florida. And so Mabel sees this as an effort to just totally embarrass Virgil Hawkins' efforts at, at winning his case before the Supreme Court. This kid has an airtight alibi Everybody kind of knows that this kid did not do it, but Willis McCall is going to railroad him straight to the electric chair. He's done this kind of thing before. And so Mabel starts reporting it, and all of a sudden, two days later, McCall releases Virgil Hawkins. And never mind that the, the victim said that she had been attacked by a husky African-American. Now Willis McCall and his deputies set their sights on a young, white, mentally disabled teenager named Jesse Daniels and release all the other black suspects. And now they're saying it's this poor white kid from just down the road. What is their case against Jesse Daniels? Is Daniels able to provide any sort of defense or explanation for himself? Well, he is. He's at home sleeping with his parents. They said he's got the intelligence, the IQ of a 10-year-old kid. So he slept very close to his parents with a teddy bear. And because this attack happened at 1.20 in the morning, Parents were absolutely convinced that he was at home the whole time. There's no physical evidence linking him to this case. In fact, the physical evidence sort of suggested that the attacker fled in a car because there were t- 
tire tracks uh, next to the house, and Jesse Daniels does not drive. He rides a bicycle around town. But what happens is they've sort of, and this is the hard thing to really fathom, but it happened a lot in Lake County and Sheriff Willis McCall's department. They basically got a confession out of Jesse Daniels after a couple days. And the confession, we later learned, was taken at gunpoint. McCall pulled a pistol on Daniels and basically told him to confess. And this is something that Sheriff Willis McCall had done in the past. So Mabel was very adamant that Jesse Daniels did not confess by his own free will. To bring back the scope of the conversation a little bit, how is mental illness understood in the South at the time and and around the country? How is mental illness understood legally and treated in legal cases? And in what ways does McCall's treatment of Jesse Daniels reflect a larger pattern in the United States and how the law handled issues surrounding mentally impaired individuals? Well, that, that's a really great question. This was really surprising to me when I was doing the research on this because I didn't realize back then how few rights mental health patients or victims of these crimes had. And so what was really easy to do, this was before the Baker Act, and I can talk about the Baker Act, which didn't come along until the 1970s, that gave certain legal protections to mentally disabled people in Florida. Uh, Before that, all you really needed was a judge's signature to commit you. And so if you had a judge who happened to be in on a conspiracy to frame somebody, which is what happened in this case, all he had to do was sign a document committing Jesse Daniels to a mental institute. The lawyer he had was uh, a court-appointed lawyer who was a former prosecutor, and he was in on it too. And so they got together and basically railroaded Jesse Daniels to this horrible mental institute called Chattahoochee, which was renowned for the depravity and just overcrowded, violent. It was a full lockdown type prison under the guise of providing mental health care. So because they didn't have any evidence against Jesse Daniels, and because, frankly, the victim in the case did not want to testify against him because she was adamant that she'd been raped by a black teenager, She didn't want to testify. And so what they did was they just said, well, we'll just throw Jesse Daniels into this mental institute, keep him there. And that way we don't have to give him a trial. And that was the way of just brushing it under the rug and basically covering it up. And again, it was not necessarily legal in that there were laws supporting this, but rather it was just an absence in legal framework for fairly trying those with mental illness. Right. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is rape in Florida was a capital offense. So... Technically, Jesse Daniels would have been facing the electric chair. However, they just they did not use it for white people who got convicted of rape. It was mostly used for African-Americans who were convicted of rape with white women. So that was that was one of the most unjust prosecutions for rape in the South. It was really only used as a legal lynching for accusations from black men on white women. And so I talk about that a lot in the book because This is a very, very potent time in American history, right after Brown. They would talk about desegregation, not being opposed to blacks going to school with whites. The the fear was that blacks were going to start coming into the bedroom of whites and there was going to be this miscegenation. And and so this fear kind of drove these local law enforcement agencies into these really drastic and draconian type situations. And the Jesse Daniels case is a perfect example of that. 
So something that's striking about Beneath a Ruthless Sun is the influence and importance of personality, how the personalities of these major players in the story affect the the happenings of the story. And one of the personalities, in my opinion, one of the more interesting people of the story is Leroy Collins, the, the governor of Florida at the time, who's he's a white Democrat. He was a voice of moderation and something of a check to Willis McCall. Can you talk a little bit about Governor Collins? Yeah, Collins is a really interesting governor because, you know, like you said, he was he was very progressive in terms of women's rights and the environment. And Florida was enjoying this unbelievable population growth and economic growth. So the state was doing great. So in 1956, he runs for election. The only issue that his opponents wanted to talk about was segregation. And that was what the entire campaign was run on. Collins had to be very careful because he could not be a moderate in terms of segregation. Back then, you were either for segregation or against it. Now, even though he was progressive, he ran against desegregation. But he had this sort of wink to the African-Americans of Florida that, look, you know I'm going to be much more open-minded about desegregation than any of my opponents. I'm not going to come right out and say it, but I think you know where I stand on this. And it was one of the great winks, I think, in in political history. And sure enough, it was the African-Americans who delivered Collins to victory in 56. And once he was elected, he could felt like he could really go after McCall now. He'd put up with these kind of civil rights abuses from Willis McCall for nearly a decade. And McCall was just one real thorn in his side. McCall represented old Florida, the kind of racist, clan-driven Florida that Collins was trying to get away with and modernize it with space and business. And so he felt like he could really go after uh, Willis McCall, especially after that election. And so that's when he really turns on and, and starts working with Mabel to really remove Willis McCall from office. Gilbert, you just mentioned the presence of the Klan in Central Florida at the time. Willis McCall himself was a Klansman. In what ways does the KKK play a role in this? And and can you help us understand exactly how the KKK was seen by the community of Lake County? What social and legal and physical presence they had in the community? Well, you know, what's really interesting in this case is that I think a lot of the wealthier people put Willis McCall into office in 1944. But once he was elected, he was really answerable only to his voters and his constituency. And his constituency in rural Lake County their interests very much aligned with the Klan. Many people in Lake County were in the Klan at the time, and they were just absolutely against desegregation of schools. Civil rights was not on their radar. They wanted a strong sheriff who was going to keep blacks in line, especially in the citrus groves as labor. They didn't want unions coming in. They didn't want any of the black pickers to have any rights because that was against their economic interests. And so you have this situation where McCall is basically this strong man and the white community who the majority of voters in Lake County was more than happy with this arrangement. And so McCall really knew where his power was derived from. And that was by being a hardline law and order type sheriff, which you saw throughout the South at the time. But there was probably not a single sheriff who was as violent and as, as deadly as Sheriff Willis McCall. And there's also a fair amount of violence you mentioned in the attempt to repress African-Americans organizing for their own economic interests. There's an incident, as described in the book, where I can't remember if it was Klansmen or if it was just white citizens, like literally opened fire on a union meeting. How visible was this type of violence and how visible was the Klan at the time? 
Oh, they were they were very visible. I mean, everybody knew they existed. In fact, in Mount Dora, which is the sort of upscale community where um, Mabel Norris Reese was working and, and running the newspaper there, uh, she used to be on the side of the road and just all of a sudden she'd just see all the local Klansmen go into a Klan meeting. The chief of police at the time was in the Klan, and it was on the front pages of newspapers. I mean, he testified in Washington about basically being in the Klan. And so then he went back to Mount Dora and ran the town. But he was he was, you know, basically the, the head of the clavern. And so it was very open. It was very much out there. And one of the people I interviewed for this book was a Lake County deputy who in his late 80s. Um, and he admitted to me that he was in the Klan himself. And he told me about the inner workings of how they did this. And basically his point to me was like we would let law enforcement do it first. But if they didn't deal with it proper, then we would come in. And so that was what you'd see a lot of missing people. There was a rumor in Lake County that the citrus fields of Lake County were fertilized with the bodies of black men. And there was a lot of missing persons in Lake County. And the response from the sheriff's department was always, well, they probably just migrated north and got work. You'll hear from them at some point. But you'd hear from the relatives and know that he would never leave like that. He was, you know, he was organizing a union. He was very much involved in his family. But all of a sudden, these men would turn up missing. And so those are the kind of things that the Klan was involved in, not just shooting up union meetings and, and making people disappear. With a story that is so timely and, has, and is so important to, uh, in many ways, the national narrative that we have right now about, about um, you know, the legal protection for disadvantaged populations— you know, how do you, when you're composing such a, you know, such a, such a story in Beneath the Ruthless Sun, how do you also limit the scope of the story enough to keep the message rooted to the story of Jesse Daniels and to Mabel Reese, while also taking into account these larger messages about how we treat different populations? And, and that was the, the real challenge. I try to stay really far removed from that. I don't like to use a lot of contemporary references or comparisons. I kind of like to lay it out there so that the reader just makes these connections on their own. And, and I think that that's really what happens because most of the comments I get were like, wow, this is still happening or we're still dealing with this kind of thing. One of the interesting threads that I didn't really even realize, but I'm writing this along, you know, in, in 2016 at the same time we're having this, you know, presidential election. And one of the things that really occurred to me was that you know, Willis McCall, he just hated Mabel Norris Reese. And Mabel is just constantly writing about him and questioning some of these civil rights cases that no other reporters are really writing about. And all he does is just constantly slur her. Um, and it kind of reminded me of what was happening in, in the election with fake news. Uh, all Willis McCall would ever say to Mabel is like, she's red as a huckleberry's behind. Uh, she's a communist. Why are you listening to her? She just has it out for the white man. Nothing she writes is true. And it was just constantly berating her and berating her and saying that all her reports were lies. Um, that, that thread I found really interesting. And that really played out in a contemporary way that didn't really occur to me as I was writing it. But when I look back in 2016, it was really right there. Gilbert, this is a striking and important book. And I want to thank you very much for joining us on Interrobing Podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jack. Gilbert King will visit Interrobing Books on Monday, May 21st at 7 p.m. You can reserve a copy of Beneath the Ruthless Sun in the store or online at www.interrobingbooks.com. Next, here are some of the great events happening in the store in the coming weeks. 
On Wednesday, May 9th at 7 p.m., National Book Award finalist Lisa Ko will visit the store to read from her novel, The Leavers. The following night, May 10th, we're excited to have Nigerian author Chimbundu Onuzo here in the store to read from her new book, Welcome to Lagos. The event starts at 7 p.m. Dallas author Julia Heberlin is coming to Interrobang on Tuesday, May 15th at 7 p.m. to discuss her novel, Paper Ghosts. Remember, you can find out about these and all of our other events on our website, www.interrobangbooks.com. That's it for episode 15 of Interrobang Podcast. New episodes of Interrobang Podcast are posted every other week, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The podcast is produced by Interrobang Books in Dallas, Texas. Our music was composed by Carlos Guajardo. I'm Jack Freeman. We hope to see you in the store soon. Have a great week and read fearlessly. Thank you.